Well, with that in mind, let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Let us open to the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Christians living and worshiping in Rome in the late 50s A.D. And again, let's work through the book in a single sermon. And I want to give particular attention to the first eight chapters. So if you get a little worried by the time I get to chapter 8 that I'm not you know, halfway through the time, well, it's okay. I'm going to give most of our attention to the first eight chapters. My hope is that every last one of us can sit down with an unbeliever in a one-on-one Bible study and work your way right through this epistle. Part of the reason I'm preaching the sermon today is if you have that opportunity, maybe you want a refresher and you can go back and listen to the sermon. I had the privilege of doing that with one of our international visiting scholars a couple years ago. He was raised Catholic and we began working into the book of Romans and he came to see that a great deal of his theology was in fact unscriptural just showed him the theology of the book of Romans, and he said, well, that's not what I believe, but here it is. He says, well, that's what I need to believe. So that's my hope. Rome was the capital city of the greatest empire the world had yet produced. By land, it was a 2,500-mile journey from Jerusalem. Yet within 20 years of Jesus Christ's resurrection, Christianity had gained a foothold in this illustrious city. How is that possible? And the mystery becomes even more intriguing when you read the first word of the first chapter of Romans. Paul. And who is that? Paul was the Greek name of a Hebrew man named Saul. His name didn't change. He simply had two names. We meet Paul or Saul for the first time in Acts 8, where Luke says Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In Acts 9, Luke says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul later says of himself in Acts 26, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Those are frightening words. The words of a former terrorist. And that violent persecutor wrote this epistle to men and women living in a foreign city. And within seven years, their church would experience a ravishing persecution at the hands of the fiendish emperor Nero. And Paul himself was likely, likely suffered martyrdom 
under Nero. And this is really, truly marvelous. How does a persecuted sectarian minority group succeed in converting a violent persecutor, establishing a church in Rome 2,500 miles away from Jerusalem, and manage to grow so rapidly as to draw down the wrath of the pagan emperor on themselves, all within less than one generation? The answer is found in Romans 1, verse 16. Notice how Paul defines the term gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. That's the gospel. Romans explains the transformative power of the good news of Jesus Christ. It transformed the persecutor and it transformed the empire and is transforming the world right up to the present hour. This is a message that is powerful and worth explaining. So can you just walk your way straight through Romans and explain it to someone, in particular the first eight chapters? I hope you can do that. Chapter 1 introduces the book. Paul identifies himself in verse 1 as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And it's that same gospel that Paul explains in the book of Romans. Now observe in verse 2, the gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul is not introducing some new religion The gospel is compatible with the message of the ancient Jewish prophets recorded in the Old Testament. And Paul's introduction runs down to verse 17 where he tells us this, the righteousness of God has been revealed, has been manifested. This is a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ revealed, God revealed in human flesh. However, before explaining what the coming of God in human flesh means for us, Paul abruptly introduces a different theme. Universal condemnation. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed... At the present hour, friends, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is a statement of present reality. It was reality in the first century. It is reality in the 21st century. God is angry at this very moment at sinful men who everywhere suppress the truth of the Creator all around them. Open your eyes and look at the world. There is a Creator. And Paul continues this theme of universal condemnation right through chapter 3 and verse 20. So indeed, verse 17, God's righteousness has been revealed, but before, God, before Paul can explain that, verse 17, he's going to make sure we understand, yeah, we're all condemned. We've got to get everybody condemned first. 
So in the remainder of chapter 1, Paul ranges from very broad to very specific sins that anger God. And Paul is emphatic. People know exactly what they're doing when they rebel against God. Would you look at verse 32? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, the things he's just itemized, deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We not only practice sin, we approve it. It was Blaise Pascal who said, everyone is aware of two truths. There is a God, and there is corruption in our hearts that make us unworthy of God. We all know it. In Paul's case of universal condemnation continues into Romans 2, where Paul condemns the self-righteous hypocrite who says, well, God, go ahead and condemn everyone else, but not me. Verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And as the chapter moves along, Paul really narrows his sights on a hypothetical Jewish man. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew, Paul identifies a hypothetical Jewish man. He says, well, you know, God gave me the law and God gave me the covenant of circumcision. I'm not condemned. The Jew reads the prophets. He reads the holy scriptures of the Old Testament and Paul referenced them back in chapter 1. And Paul comes along and Paul says, my gospel is in fact compatible with the law and the prophets. And the Jewish man says, yeah, me too, Paul. I'm keeping the law. I'm part of the covenanted community. I'm part of that whole legacy stretching all the way back to the Old Testament prophets. And Paul turns to that man and he says, your circumcision is worthless. God cares about the circumcision of your heart. Your law-keeping is not going to do you any good whatsoever because nobody can keep it perfectly. Look at verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, this argument from chapters 1 and 2 spills right over into chapter 3. Paul quotes the Old Testament extensively to demonstrate in the words of verse 10, none is righteous. Wait, 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 maybe one. No, not one. But wait, Paul, what about that whole chosen nation who have God's laws. No, again, verse 20, for the, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Impossible. No human being will be justified in his sight since the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law tells me how sinful I am. It's not a means of salvation. So at this point, Paul has just come along and he's condemned everyone. And he's taken the very scriptures the Jew had such pride in, and he uses those same scriptures to condemn the Jews. 
And by the time we reach chapter 3 and verse 20, if we've even made it that far, we are all condemned. But like a giant hinge bolted down at the center of human history, Romans 3 verse 21 changes everything. Let's read these glorious words. But now, the righteousness of God, that's what we were looking for back in chapter 1. The righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed or made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament bears witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the righteousness that Paul spoke of back in chapter 1 and verse 17. The righteousness of God has been revealed. Well, where is it? Here it is, but now. But Paul wants us to know it's revealed against this terrible backdrop of universal condemnation. And those two little words, but now, signal a revolution in human history. God's wrath has been revealed, but suddenly in real time and space, God revealed His righteousness in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets bear witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said in Luke 24, it all points like an arrow to me. That's where it's all going. That was their true function I need the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ because I, like you, am condemned. This is really, really good news. Verse 21, then, is a hermeneutical hinge in the text. In fact, it's the most important transition moment in all of human history. From chapter 1 and verse 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20, again, Paul condemns everyone... But now from chapter 3 and verse 21 through the end of chapter 8 of Romans, Paul will explain in tremendous detail the wonderful gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this gospel is in fact available to everyone who has the same problem, namely sin. If you're a sinner, this gospel is for you. That's what Paul means at the end of verse 22 and verse 23. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned. Ultimately, the human race has precisely one problem, universal condemnation because of our universal sinfulness. And if there's one problem, that means the same solution will work for everyone. God does not discriminate. That's what he's saying here. Because we all have the same disease, the cure works for everyone. Every tribe and tongue and nation, it works for everyone. Now let's move forward with the right side of this hinge. In Romans 4, Paul explains that justification comes by faith, not works. He wants it to be really clear. We're not saved by works. We're saved by God pronouncing us just on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness. 
But wait just a minute. Weren't Old Testament saints saved by keeping works, doing all the sacrifices, keeping all the laws? No. Verse 3, what does the Scripture say about this? Abraham believed God and it was accounted it was accounted to him as righteousness that's how abraham was saved by faith he believed and paul says that's how we're all saved and if abraham isn't a sufficient example then consider david verse 6 just as david also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom god counts righteousness apart from works people were saved by faith in the old testament just as in the new And friends, there could hardly be two more famous Old Testament saints than Abraham and David. And neither one were saved by works. Well, wait, wasn't circumcision necessary for salvation? No. In verses 9 and 10, Paul says Abraham was already justified before he was circumcised. And what about us? Are we saved the same way Abraham was saved? Yes, verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, the words of Genesis 15 and verse 6, those words were written, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So you can read the same passage, Genesis 15, where Abraham came to Christ, and you can put your faith in Christ. Those words are for you. We are justified, friends, by faith apart from works. And David were justified. And that brings us now to chapter 5, where Paul will itemize several results of justification. If you look, for instance, at verse 1, here's a wonderful result of justification. We have peace with God. Imagine God saying to you, as he does to many Old Testament nations, I am against you. Imagine God is your enemy. We have peace with God. Or verse 2, Paul says, we have hope. In fact, a kind of hope that produces, verse 3, rejoicing in suffering. This is no social gospel or no, no priority, um, prosperity gospel where Jesus just comes to make us wealthy and healthy. No, but we rejoice even in suffering. And in chapter 5, Paul also identifies two human beings, Adam and Jesus Christ. And Paul argues in chapter 5 that every human being stands before God in either Adam or Jesus. That's it. You've got two options. And the origin point of all death and all sin came through Adam. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. We all sinned in Adam. There's a great deal of theological discussion about that verse that I won't get into, but you can go back if you want and listen to the sermon on that verse. But I do want to say this, this verse, probably more than any other in the entire Bible, has come to mind more frequently over the last year 
as we have witnessed the novel COVID-19 coronavirus sweeping through the world. And even now, as it ravages fellow image bearers in India, people all over the globe, regardless of ethnicity, language, country of origin, culture, isn't it amazing we all succumb to the same virus? Viruses do not acknowledge language or ethnic barriers. We all have the same curse. We are all dying in Adam. We are all susceptible to the same effects of the curse. And in fact, even if COVID-19 is completely eliminated, every last case eliminated, the mortality rate on this planet will remain stubbornly fixed at 100%. There's no getting around that. There is no vaccine for the human condition. Death spreads to all men. But there is hope. Romans 5 is incredibly positive. We're not supposed to wallow in Adam. That's not the point of Romans 5. The point of Romans 5 is, here's another result of justification. We no longer have to stand before God in Adam. We can all, through justification, stand before God in Jesus Christ. There's the hope. There's the hope. We stand before God in Christ's righteousness alone. So you can come into God's presence in Adam, or you can come clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's it. And now we come to Romans 6, where Paul begins to explain what new life in Christ looks like. The fact is, I do not have to continue in sin any longer. And that's because I died with Christ. And because I resurrected with Christ. I've said it often and it bears repeating. Jesus did not die so that you can live. Jesus died so that you can die. And Jesus resurrected so that you can live. You've got, you've got to keep those two pieces together. Cross and the tomb, they go together. And my baptism, Paul says, actually symbolizes my union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, I died with Christ. When did you die? 2,000 years ago I died. I perished on a cross in Jerusalem. We've been united with Him in a death like His. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And we know that our old self was crucified with Him. That's all you can do with the old self. You have to crucify it. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we no longer, so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Uh, 
So friends, this is my new reality. I died with Christ on a cross. And I'm resurrected with Christ from a tomb. Yes, I do still sin, but I no longer have to sin. I actually have the power through Christ to say no to sin. Now, I do a very bad job of it, as we all do. But we at least at this point have the power through the Spirit that we will discover in chapter 8 to resist sin. In verse 12, Paul says, I do not have to live under the tyrannical reign of sin in my body. And in verse 17, Paul says, I'm no longer a slave to sin. So Romans 6 really is enormously important for working out a doctrine of sanctification. You've been justified. Now what? Well, sanctification, my new life in Christ. And that brings us to Romans 7. Paul argues that I have died the law. I am no longer under the tyrannical reign of a taskmaster that I could never obey anyway. Now think about all those Jews who went about fastidiously observing the law, thinking they were pleasing God. I've kept all these things from my youth up. Paul comes along in verse 5 and he tells us the law did not enable us to please God at all. In fact, the law aroused our sinful passions. The minute someone tells us what to do, we just rebel. It's like, it's like part of our nature. You can't tell me no. Be honest, how many of you have seen a speed limit sign posted and it arouses hostility in your heart? That's not fair. How many excuses have you formulated in your mind before the officer makes it to your window? How many of you just said, you know, I'm just, I'm just guilty. Like, I'm totally guilty. I don't think that happens very often. Well, the speed limit sign is not sinful, but it certainly exposes something in your heart. That's what the law does. What happens when you read the employee manual? How many of those rules just kind of make you bristle? Like, What? My father was a pilot for United Airlines, and his children were used to fly standby. And United had some pretty rigid guidelines for employees and their families that flew on their airplanes. And if you turn one of those standby tickets over on the backside, there was a pretty rigid dress code right there that you had to abide by. Quite literally, I recall gate agents walking around the podium and checking the shoes of employees before they got on the plane. The shoes. And employees weren't very happy about it. You mean to tell me I've got to go buy a new pair of shoes before I get on the plane? That's ridiculous. It's just the rule. The law arouses something in your heart. That's the point. The law reveals our sinfulness. It's not a means of personal justification through obedience. It, in fact, tells us we need a substitute. But as believers, Paul says now in the middle of verse 6, we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He tried to keep all those laws, and he never could. And Paul says, okay, but you're a believer now. And you serve in the new way with the Spirit filling you. That really is the heartbeat of sanctification. 
The Spirit enables you to do what the flesh never could. This last Wednesday night with our men, we talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. God the Father in heaven looks at His Son and says, I'm very well pleased with the Son. The Spirit comes on Him and the Spirit takes Him right into the wilderness where He survives 40 days of blistering temptation from the devil. And it was the Spirit who led Him. Look at these words, verse 6. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. Guess what? Jesus said... The Father who sent the Spirit to dwell in me. He said this in the upper room. The Father and I will send that same Spirit and He will indwell you and remain with you forever. Think of that. That's that's the heartbeat of sanctification. The same Spirit that sustained Jesus through trial and temptation is given to you. Without the Spirit, you will not be sanctified. And Paul concludes chapter 7 by reminding us just how terrible it is to live under the law and to live apart from Christ. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Ever feel that way? Friends, the flesh is the part of you that never gets redeemed. You don't make it better. The flesh is the part of you that has to be mortified, crucified, and buried in a tomb. And how many of us can really identify with verse 24? Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. I know you still feel that way because we still live in these fallen bodies. Even as believers, you can still feel really wretched. But what's the answer? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We do have the solution already. And with that in place, we come to chapter 8. A chapter that feels like we're living now on a mountaintop, enjoying the pristine beauty of creation. Some have called Romans 8 the greatest chapter in all the Bible. The catalog of benefits that we enjoy through the gospel is astonishing. For starters, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, God cannot and God will not condemn me because I am in Christ. It would be unrighteous for God to condemn me because he already condemned Christ in my place. Moreover, God gives me his spirit. In the first seven chapters of Romans, Paul mentioned the Holy Spirit just four times. And we saw one of those mentions back in chapter 7. Just four times in the first seven chapters. But in Romans 8 alone, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times. Five times more than the previous seven chapters combined. This chapter just really breathes the air of the Spirit breathing on us. The Holy Spirit is the heartbeat of the new Christian life. And in verse 9, in the Spirit, I no longer have to live in the flesh. That's what I was struggling with back in chapter 7. 
But in the Spirit, I don't have to live in the flesh any longer. And notice this, verse 15, I can call God my Father through adoption. Verse 17, I'm a fellow heir with Christ. And verse 18, any suffering that I experience for the present will just disappear against the eternal weight of glory to come. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In the following verses, Paul argues that I am on my way to the new creation. I am resurrected with Christ. And this groaning, travailing creation will just give way to the Easter morning of the new world. But again, for the present, our lives are full of trouble and turmoil. And so the Spirit comes alongside and He helps us. He helps us even when our problems are so severe, we don't even know how to verbalize a prayer. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Imagine that. You don't even know what to say. The situation is so complex and so difficult and so troubling. It's like, what do I even say to God? It's okay. The Spirit prays for you. Over the last year, we had members of our church hospitalized with COVID. Very, very severe. And I just remember thinking, you know, Spirit, would you just would you just come alongside them and strengthen them and help them? And it was terrible. You couldn't get in to see them. And you just, I, just, I found myself just casting them on the Spirit and saying, Spirit of God, would you just help these people, encourage them? That's our hope. Now, Romans 8 begins with a statement of no condemnation. And would you notice how it ends with a statement of no separation? Nothing in all creation, no persecution, famine, nakedness, or sword can ever sever me from my perfect union with Christ. Look at verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, demonic powers, Satan himself. We saw that in chapter 16. God will crush Satan under your feet nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Paul's gospel. The first eight chapters reveal what God has done for us through the revelation of Jesus Christ in the flesh through His incarnation at the center of human history. So again, think of that great hinge at the center of human history back in chapter 3 and verse 21. Over on the left, universal condemnation. And here's the hinge. But now, the righteousness of God has been revealed. That's Christ. And over here on the right, union with Christ through His Spirit for time and eternity. That's the gospel. Well then, How do we live out this gospel? And the answer comes beginning with chapter 12, verse 1. Don't turn there yet. 
But if you were to read straight from the end of chapter 8 right into chapter 12, you would notice a seamless transition from gospel to application. But there are three chapters between. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, what do they concern? One commentator has written Romans 9 through 11 is as full of problems as a hedgehog is full of prickles. Many have given it up as a bad job. Leaving Romans is a book with eight chapters of gospel at the beginning and four of application at the end and three of puzzle in the middle. Others have suggested that chapters 9 through 11 are sort of oddly placed postscript that somehow got moved back in the epistle. And so others have called it the center of gravity in the epistle. Well, we can be certain that chapters 9 through 11 are significant because they are breathed out by God's Spirit. Even if we do acknowledge, they do disrupt the even flow of the book just a little bit. So read Romans 1 through 8, read 12 to the end, and you really got the gospel. But now chapters 9 through 11, Paul has to deal with an issue that's nagging at him. What's the problem? Well, notice the abrupt transition at the end of chapter 8 where Paul celebrates the love of God. Nothing in all the world can separate God from His people, right? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful words. Nothing can separate us from God. But if that's true, here's an enormous question that's nagging Paul. Explain Israel. Aren't they God's chosen people? And haven't they been separated from the love of God? Aren't they God's chosen? Friends, the psychological, emotional transition from chapter 8 to chapter 9 is astonishing. Paul's countenance falls from the pinnacle of heaven to the depths of hell. Chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. When we're faced with a troubling question, we use precisely the kind of emphatic repetition that Paul employs here. Look, everyone, I am speaking the truth. I am not lying. I am saying this with a clear conscience. Paul says the same thing three times in verse 1. Moreover, he invokes both Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as his witnesses to his grief. And in verse 2, Paul speaks of a person that has been bereft of his family. A man who suddenly loses his wife, children, grandchildren, everything and everyone that he holds dear. And the anguish of his own heart just never ceases. And what is so deeply troubling? Verse 3, the fate of Israel. His brothers, his own kinsmen. Paul's love is supremely astonishing. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Paul's prayer of personal anathema 
is a striking demonstration of his love for his own kinsmen and his belief in the power of the gospel. Now skip ahead to chapter 10 and verse 1. Paul continues the same lament. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Or chapter 11, Paul asks, has God rejected his people? So again, Paul is very concerned for Israel. And Paul identifies with them. Read on. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. This whole section, chapters 9 through 11, concerns Israel. Now recall that very important statement back in chapter 1. Paul said the gospel was promised beforehand through his holy prophets, or through the prophets and the holy scriptures. So Paul is not introducing some new religion. The gospel that Paul preached in Romans 1 through 8 is compatible with the message of the Jewish prophets in the Old Testament. So let's think for a moment about the content of those holy scriptures. Go back to chapter 9 and verse 4. Chapter 9 and verse 4. Paul says this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who was God over all, blessed forever, amen. All of that was compatible with the Old Testament. That's the content of the Old Testament. The adoption here is not the adoption of the Christian in Romans 8. This is the adoption of the nation of Israel. And Israel had the Shekinah glory of God dwelling in their midst. Israel had the covenants. God made a covenant with Abraham, Moses, and David, all of whom belonged to Israel. And Israel had the law. They of all people knew how to worship God. Israel had the temple and the sacrifices. They had the promises of God given repeatedly to the prophets. The patriarchs themselves were from Israel, related to Israel by flesh and blood. And they had the promise of the coming Messiah, the Christ, God himself. Yet somehow, despite all of that, Israel failed to understand the gospel when Paul made it clear in Romans 1 through 8. Everything he says in Romans 1 through 8 is, in fact, compatible with the Old Testament, with the law, with the covenants, with the patriarchs. It's compatible with the Messiah of the Old Testament. And yet the Jew, by and large, just rejected Paul's gospel. Paul was hounded constantly by the Judaizers on his missionary journeys. How did they miss it? And again, consider the end of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even your sin. Well, aren't the Jews God's people? And aren't they separated from God's love? That, that's the question that is so nagging Paul that he takes three chapters to deal with it. And let's just be really clear about one point, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Don't, ever, don't anyone think, well, God failed Israel. Don't anyone think that. Paul explains in Romans 9 through 11 that God's word does not fail, and that even now he is redeeming a remnant, including Paul himself. And, in fact, Paul uses a great illustration in chapter 11 to argue that God has the power 
to take all those natural olive branches and to graft them back into the stock. And Paul argues in Romans 11 that Jeremiah 31 will be fulfilled. Israel will embrace her Savior when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God's word does not fail. And that brings us to chapter 12. Very quickly. Can we apply this glorious gospel that we've learned about? What is the application of justification? We've been justified. What's the outgrowth of that? Well, beginning with verse 1, Paul makes an appeal based on the gospel. One of our members told me this week, I memorized Romans chapter 12 after you preached through it. That's a, that's a really, really good application. Maybe we could just all do that. And, and he's older than me, so don't, don't, don't use the excuse of, well, I'm not. only young people can memorize. He's smarter than me, too. That's Ted. All right. <laughs> you all want to know. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That has to take place constantly, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, that appeal just flows very naturally out of Romans 8. God has gifted you with the gospel. Now give your lives right back to God. Don't follow the world from which God has redeemed you. And now watch how these appeals just keep on coming. Chapter 12, verse 9. Here's an appeal based on the gospel. Let love be genuine. Verse 13. Here's an appeal based on the gospel. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Chapter 13, verse 1. Here's an appeal based on the gospel. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Paul will deal with our conduct with respect to the world around us and government authority. This is why we wore the mask. We didn't like them. I get it. You know what? We can do this. How does a Christian live in this world even when there's a pagan sitting on the throne? Paul explains that. And in Romans 14, Paul addresses our conduct with respect to other Christians, particularly weaker brothers. Verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not the quarrel of our opinions. In chapter 14 and verse 13, don't be a stumbling block. And that same thinking now runs right into chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. All these appeals are being made to us as the outcome of the gospel. So in summary, chapters 12 through 16 concern the conduct of Christians who have embraced the gospel of chapters 1 through 8. And friends, can I just leave us with a final thought? Clearly, the gospel isn't merely a truth that I embrace at age 5 or 25. The gospel isn't merely what I believe about reality, but it has no effect on how I live. Do not compartmentalize the gospel into a little intellectual category in your brain, little truths that you hold to in your brain. The gospel has something to say about all of my relationships from my family to my employer to my church family and even to human government.
the point of chapters 12 through 16 is the gospel, the gospel thinking really needs to be worked out in every little corner of our lives. So with that in mind, can I just really quickly give you a little preview of what's going to happen this summer? I know you all are probably interested now that I finished Romans, where are we going from here? All right, let me just take just a moment and then we'll pray and be done. Uh, next week, I will be gone. Really looking forward to uh, John Ledbetter speaking next week. And then I'll be back the next week, but we are going to have a very, very special Sunday where Brother Tim Warren is going to be preaching to us. Tim Warren is our intern, and uh, he is fast moving through the ordination process, and we, we really need to get him up here preaching. Uh, part of the ordination process involves him preaching, and so we're looking forward to hearing from Tim on May the 30th. All right, that's the next two Sundays. And then I'm going to come back in June, and there's a few just theological applicational issues that I chose not to really get into when we were in the book of Romans, and I'm going to take some time this summer and develop just a few of those things. Uh, this summer also, July 4th falls on a Sunday, so I really want to go back to Romans 13 and develop a little bit more of our thinking about human government and that sort of thing. So this summer I'm going to be doing a little bit of that. I do also um, hope to hear from Brother Marsh and Brother Joseph and give our other elders here a chance to preach. And then, uh, Lord willing, uh, Sometime, uh, maybe August time frame, I'm going to be launching the book of John, the Gospel of John. So if you want to go ahead and get started on John, great. Start reading it, start meditating on it. That's going to be coming. I don't have a date on it yet, uh, but I've got about, I don't know, 25 sermons written on it so far. So we're, we're going to get into John, and I'm really, really excited about it at some point uh, toward the end of the summer. I might, I might stretch it out, wait till the students get back and everybody gets back from vacation because the summer everybody kind of clears out a little bit, I understand. So at some point along the way. So that's the summer for us. We're going to be hearing from some of the other men, thankfully, and uh, some real application of gospel issues that arose out of Romans chapter 12. All right, let's pray, and then I'll make one more announcement. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful gospel that we have discovered through the book of Romans, and I pray, Lord, that this book would, Lord, not just be retired to a shelf now, but that we would really truly live out, live out these gospel truths that we have discovered. We pray all this for Christ's sake. Amen.